You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, our scripture reading today is going to be on your screen, your left and your right, maybe right in front of you. Uh, it's going to be from the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. Here we go. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. I was having breakfast recently with a friend of mine, as friends do, and he was recounting his story from the past 18 months uh, of our, our lives and our nation, and his story may sound a lot like your story over the last 18 months. He, he was telling me how hard all the stress of the pandemic and our cultural climate had been on his life, on his marriage, on his job, on his family, about how disruptive, how unpredictable the world had been, and how he had ground him down lower and lower and lower, and then he said this. And it's a phrase that I've heard recently quite a lot, and I think maybe you've heard it too. And he said this, he said it's like, it's like we can't count on anything anymore. It's like we can't count on anything anymore. And and I heard those words, and I think in some ways, I think maybe in a lot of ways, I think he's right. I think he's right. And as a result of that, here's what I think can happen. I think that when you feel like you can't count on the stuff you used to be able to count on before, when you feel like you can't count on the people you used to be able to count on, when you feel like you can't count on the systems or institutions you used to be able to count on, then this thing can 
intend to happen. Now we begin to question why those things were even there in the first place. And we question why were we even involved in the first place. We can go from difficulty to uncertainty to cynicism to quitting. Like, like what just began as like a hard thing somehow ends with us dropping out. And for example, for those of you who, who during the, the pandemic over the last bit, if, if your marriage if it really struggled and suffered, and I know a lot of them did, you begin to ask the question, why am I still married? Is being married to him or her still worth it? For those of you in, in schools, when schools are opening and shutting, you're online at home, you're like hybrid, masks, no masks, who knows? You know, you start to question, is school still worth it? Is studying still worth it? For those of, of you in leadership positions in your company or organization, when, when social conditions, public health recommendations, people's extreme political leanings, they all conspire to make your role a daily nightmare, you start to question is this job still worth it? See, we go from difficulty, huh? To uncertainty, to cynicism, to quitting. And I don't blame you for feeling this way. I don't blame anyone for feeling this way, for sure. Because I know, I'm sure, that if I were you in your position, and I'd been through the things you've been through, felt the things you felt, I might have decided the things that you have decided. So I don't blame you at all. No, no, no. But if we're not careful. If we're not careful, the same thing can happen when it comes to our spiritual lives, to our connection with God, and more specifically, to our connection with a local church. Uh, because, you know, it was open, hmm? then it was closed, it's online, it was Zoom, like, these people are crazy, those people are crazy. Like, one person laughed. I know you all thought that. That's okay. And so you can come to ask the question, is church still worth it? And if that's you, if you're asking that, I want to tell you, you're not alone. Not alone. Why are we here? You may have asked. You're asking. You're watching today at home online. Why are, why are we here? Why am I here? Is church worth it anymore? And I'm not asking this or saying this because Mosaic is in trouble in any way or not doing well. Actually, thankfully, it's quite the opposite. I'm just vocalizing this because I think Actually, I know it's something that many of us are struggling with. And if that's you, like I said, it is totally understandable, but, but maybe, maybe if you, if we are asking that question, maybe we're asking the wrong question, the wrong question, because, because here is the problem with that question. The question, is it worth it? That kind of question is purely transactional in nature. It's purely economic in nature. It's purely financial in nature. The question is asking, are the benefits for me here outweighing the costs for me here? Am I getting a good return on my investment? Are there more positives for me here than negatives for me here? And so, so if you're asking the question, is the church worth it? That shows that maybe, maybe, we're more American. We're way more consumer-oriented about God and faith than we might like to even admit. Because we're so used, to, so used to getting a good deal for the price. Hmm? Framing everything in terms of receipts, transaction, deals, reducing everything to a, a number that when it comes to people and relationships and faith and God, if we're not careful, we just take that same scale and slide it over and, and apply the same thinking 
we use the same grid. And, and here's the thing. I don't think that's who you really want to be. And I know that's who I don't want to be. And I think that's not who we really want to be together. And here's why I, I think that. Here's why I think that's, that's not actually who you want to be if that's you. And you know this if you call yourself a Christian. Because you, if you are a Jesus person, a, a Christ follower, if that's you, then you are actually already a part of the church. You're part of the group, the people of Jesus. You are, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Christian scriptures say, you are a part of the church, whether you like it or not. Now, some of you are saying, well, I don't like it. <laughs> and listen, I don't blame you. A lot of days, I don't like it either. All right. But when you ask, is the church worth it? If that's you, here's the problem. You, therefore, might as well be asking that same question about yourself. You might as well be asking, am I worth it? Am I worth it? As in, are you yourself worth it? So is that true? Are you worth being involved with, huh? Are you worth God's love? Are you worth love from others? And when you begin to think about it like that, you're like, uh, I actually, I don't like how that question sounds. I don't like what that question means. And listen, I, I don't like it either because come on, you're not a number. You're not a number to me. You're not a number to God. You're not a cost benefit analysis. You can't be reduced to an ROI or a, a financial transaction. You're a person with a name and with a story. And so I know you don't want to be treated like or thought of like a, like a number or, or a dollar bill and I don't think we really want to be the kind of people who treat others that way so in the middle of all of this kind of conversation fortunately fortunately thank God for this for all of us no matter where we're coming from here there is I think an amazing word value idea an amazing word that helps us blow through all this transactional stuff can blow through all our potential potential self-centeredness with God, faith, church, can help us blow through all our right now discouragement about the state of the world. And this one word, maybe above all, is a word that can help us remember who we are supposed to be together. And that word is this word, mission. Mission. It's the word mission. One of our core values here in Mosaic is this thing, mission. So what we're doing in this series, we're looking at our same core values in light of our different cultural moment. So don't get thrown, by the way, by this word mission, because I do know, I hear this all the time, right away people do. They get a little twisted about this word. They get thrown off or confused by this word mission, but don't do this, and here's why. Here's why I, I don't want you to do this, and here's why I know people can get it twisted. It's because some people confuse mission for Christian triumphalism. To the idea that sort of if God really does win at the end of history, which we believe, and if Christians are destined to win, win with him, sort of vicariously, that is true, but that somehow sort of justifies arrogance, a kind of religious supremacy. That's not mission. Or some people combine mission with this, with this thing, with cultural colonialism. And that's happened to the shame of the church, which, which is the idea that, that Western culture is somehow part and parcel of Christianity, that the church of Jesus exists somehow as an exporter of European values and customs. That's not mission either. Or third, some people connect mission with this phrase I totally made up. I invented this one. Personal dominationism. Not denominationism, but dominationism, like 
Mission means we get to convert people against their will. That's not the heart of mission. So don't get thrown by the word or confused by the word because it's actually a great word. And here's why. The word mission just means sent. Sent. Mission just means sent. Christian mission is just the idea that the people of God are a sent people because the God of the Bible is a sending God. Say it again. Mission is just the idea that the people of God are a sent people because the God of the Bible is a sending God. God the Father, we believe, sent Jesus the Son, who sent the Holy Spirit, who has sent us, the church, into the world. And because we are already sent by God into the world, we do our best and we feel our best when we act like who we already are, sent people. And I think there's nowhere better maybe to explore this idea and look at this value than at this story here in the book of uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 where we're, we're looking today, beginning today for the next three weeks at the value of mission, the life of Elijah. So quickly, after the world's longest introduction, I want you're like, man, when's he gonna get to his point? All right. I wanna try to ask and answer three questions quickly from a text. Three questions here about being sent. When are we sent? To whom are we sent? And finally, why are we sent? When, to whom, and why? Let's go here from 1 Kings 17 and ask the question, number one, when are we sent? And the answer is, in a crisis. In a crisis. Look at how this story begins. Verse seven, it said, sometime later, we just sort of parachuted you into the story, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. What's up? All right, back in verse one of this chapter, didn't read it, Elijah the prophet explodes onto the pages of history, roughly 850 BC, and in this dramatic showdown, Elijah goes to the king of Israel named Ahab, and he says this. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, implicit here is you don't, (laughs) there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. What's he doing? Elijah is bringing here the king of Israel directly into conflict with the God of Israel. And we'll see the climax of this confrontation next week. It's amazing. You don't want to miss it. Lots of special effects. Chapter 18. But Elijah is directly confronting Ahab because Ahab, as the king here, he had married a foreign woman prohibited by Jewish law named Jezebel. But the real problem with Jezebel was that she had imported several hundred prophets of this foreign god named Baal, pulling the people's hearts away from God. And she had begun systematically hunting down and killing anyone who stuck up for the God of Israel. By the way, real quick, please don't get hung up on the uh, villain being a woman here. She was but so is her husband. (laughs) The point is, they're both bad. And by the way, there's lots of great female Bible heroes. Just talked about that two weeks ago, and we're gonna get to another one in just a moment. But into all that decay and pluralism and persecution against the people of God, Elijah says to Ahab, in a massive sort of Gen X throwback here, you're welcome, sort of like the guy from Seinfeld, no rain for you, right? No rain for you. No rain for you. And there wasn't. You're welcome. I'll be here all week. Make sure you tip your waiter and waitress. And so there was no rain for anyone. And the drought gets worse and worse and worse. And so to survive retaliation from Ahab and to survive physically, God directs him to this little secret place to drink from a brook to get fed by ravens. And then, verse 7, sometime later, the brook dried up. So then God said this, verse 8, the word of the Lord came, go 
at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. All right. Think about what's happening here. Famine, drought, national power struggle, idolatry. Elijah's out of time, out of food, out of resources, but God still says, go, go. I've got someone for you to meet, something for you to do, and Elijah is sent to this woman in the middle of his own crisis. Back in 2001, when 9-11 happened, many of us remember that day, the global spiritual family we're a part of, called Every Nation, wanted to respond. And so a lot of the, some of the key pastors and leaders got together and decided we want to do something. So they began just to go up to Manhattan, New York, right in the middle of it in this national crisis, knew no one, no context. And something amazing happened. Somehow, God's grace, miraculously, overnight, literally, in direct response to this crisis, an incredible multi-ethnic church was planted in midtown Manhattan. They just celebrated their 20th anniversary. I've visited there. I've been there. It's amazing. And they, they made a little video, a little story about their story and how it all got going. And so I want to take the next two minutes to show you the first part of this video. And as you, as you hear it, watch it. Listen for the language in there of sentness. Sitness in crisis. Here we go. Take a look. This church was a direct response to 9-11. We, we are perhaps one of the few, if not the only church that exists because of 9-11. I was in my home in Nashville and watching the news like everyone else and seeing these uh, horrific images. And I sensed the Lord say, I want you to go to New York City to help. So I called Ron Lewis, my best friend in life, and I said, would you meet me there? He was in North Carolina, so we converged in New York City on the 13th of September in the evening. As I was driving across uh, George Washington Bridge, I looked south and saw it. Something happened that I was not expecting. I heard what I believed to be the voice of God speak to my heart, and it just came out of nowhere where he said, out of these ashes, I'll build a great church. But I knew that I had to respond with faith that God was going to redeem this horrifying situation and restore people in spite of the death and the tragedy of the moment. The former president of a music company came out of the crowd. He said, I'm affiliated with a theater on Times Square called the Lamb's Theater. I believe you can use it. We were going every Sunday night. Pastor Tim Johnson, my ministry partner, then Ron and his team would meet us in North Carolina. And then people really converged from around the every nation world in the area. As exhausted as I would be coming um, from Nashville and going through all the means of transportation to get to New York, part of the transformation was walking in that room and something happened. There was a presence from the Holy Spirit that was reviving. I was so impressed that these men were that committed to starting this church in New York City. It wooed my heart. It made me want to be part of it. There are just these young people who are hungry for God. And so these Bible studies were starting up and we were doing all we could to keep up with it. When we started our first kind of small group, connect group. Always our focus was taking care of people. People were looking to belong before they would believe. And, uh, and that was really like the, the case. And so our connectors, they were the life lifeline that they glued to our church. Yeah, sorry to cut that off there. There's a lot more to this story. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, but I hope you heard in there, the point is the language of sentence. They went in a crisis. 
Why? We know it's because sometimes people are more open than they'll ever be when their lives get turned upside down. And so God sends his people in a crisis just like he sent Jesus to humanity in our crisis. Put it like this. Mission is where God's sentness meets humanity's lostness. Mission is where God's sentness meets humanity's lostness. Is there some lost, some broken in the world? That's where we are sent because God is ascending God. We are a sent people. That's number one. Number two, second question. Well, okay then, if we're sent in a crisis, well then, to whom are we sent? Who are we sent? And the answer here is to the outsider, to the outsider. There's Elijah's story. When he came to the town gate, the widow was gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, hey, can you give me something to drink? And as she was going to get the water, he said, hey, please bring me also a piece of bread. Here's the situation. Uh, He sent to this widow. Again, who's this person that he sent to? Because it's a particular kind of person, isn't it? Yeah. The person God sends him to, look at this, is a female, someone in that day, without rights or power. Second, she's a widow. Land in that day was passed, to use the anthropological term, patrilineally. Without a husband, she's destitute. She's a single mother without resources. Some of you know what it's like to be a single mother today, how hard that is. Imagine it backed in in the middle of a drought and famine. She's from a different faith than Elijah. She's from Phoenicia, a place where Baal worship was rampant. She was different ethnically. She was from Sidon in Phoenicia. This was outside Israel, outside Elijah's country. And finally, she was a representation of his enemy. Why? Well, if you know your Bible a bit, you know that Jezebel was from this very place. She was from Phoenicia. See, Jezebel was this woman responsible for people like Elijah being hunted. Jezebel was the reason he's on the run and so out of all the people alive on the planet right then, God sends him to this kind of person, a woman from Phoenicia who was the face of, the representation of the one who hated and hunted him and to someone like that, God says, go, go. Why does God do this? Why does does he send us to people unlike us? About a decade ago, I I read a report, heard a report from a pastor's group I'm a part of in the city, and the report went like this. There was a question asked of the AISD, Austin Independent School District Superintendent. And the question was asked, how can churches in Austin best support local public schools? And the answer came back, Become a mentor to an at-risk child. Because if a child can't learn to read by third grade, that child's likelihood of ending up in prison becomes way higher. The third grade literacy is the benchmark for estimating prison construction. So I picked up the phone. I heard this. I picked up the phone and I called this local elementary school. It's just the nearest one to our facility. It's Live Oak Elementary. I just asked to speak to the counselor. I told her who I was. I'm like this random pastor from down the street. And I told her, we'd like to begin a new program mentoring at your school. And when I said this, she sort of like gave me the side eye, invited me in to meet her. Like, who is this person? Who are these people? What do you want with our kids? And all fair questions, right? But I told her, listen, we don't want anything from you. We just want to serve your at-risk population, if you'll let us. And so she did. She said yes. Principal said yes. And so myself and a few of our staff and a few early adopters here at Mosaic got involved with that mentoring bust, uh, bus. And the first year, I was matched with a child. His family moved away. So year two comes around. And I was available to be matched with a new child. And one day, 
The counselor called me. She said this. She says, we've got a first grade boy. Let's call him Stephen. Not his real name, but Stephen's six years old. He's from a different ethnic background than you, a racial background, socioeconomic background. And his father just passed away this week from a heart attack. His dad dropped dead in front of him one morning before school. Would you come in? Would you mentor him? And of course, I said yes and began a relationship with Stephen over the next eight years that really would change both our lives. And at first, I just began to play with Play-Doh with him, and then I sort of moved on to, to Legos. And right about then, the counselor said this, listen, Stephen's really struggling to learn to read. Do you think you could help him with his test scores, get those test scores up? Do you think you can help him learn to read? And so, of course, he's got a teacher, and I partner with her. But by God's grace, my mom was a reading teacher. If you're watching right now, mom, love you, thank you. Uh, and I knew that one of the best ways from her to build reading comprehension is to read to a child out loud. It's an acquired skill, but it's a big part of learning to read. And so I knew what I wanted to read to him. I wanted to read him my favorite children's book, The Hobbit. The Hobbit, yeah, Tolkien. So I brought in first some Hobbit Legos for my own kids to sort of get them hooked in the world. Played with him for a few weeks, part of my grandmaster plan. Then asked him if he wanted to read The Hobbit. And he said, no, I don't. <laughs> so I said, all right. And I, as God's my witness, this is what I did. I dropped my voice and I said, so you wouldn't want to read a book all about a wizard with extraordinary powers who goes on an epic adventure with these little people called hobbits. They fight goblins and wolves. Uh, they go across the world to reclaim their homeland and a treasure, of, a giant treasure of gold from a sleeping, fire-breathing dragon. You, you wouldn't want to read a book like that, would you? And he goes, I would, I would, I would. And so, yeah, week by week for the next few years, we made our way through the book. And by the end of fifth grade, four years later, when he finished elementary school, by that time, he actually finished, he graduated and scored in the top tier of reading comprehension on the state level test. Yeah. And was the second best reader in all his class, fifth grade at Live Oak. And when his teacher asked him, right before he finished there, to write a paper, fifth grade, about a reliable friend in his life, he wrote it about me. And here's what he wrote. I took a picture of the note that he wrote me. He said this, I think a reliable friend is an important part of the world. I have a friend that I look forward to seeing him on Fridays. And in fact, I've known him for four years. Mr. Morgan and I play catch from time to time in the gym. This makes me feel special because he takes the time from his day to spend time with me. Another reason Mr. Morgan is a special friend is because during, uh, when he, during lunch, he reads The Hobbit to me. I enjoy this because The Hobbit is my favorite book. <laughs> Mission accomplished, right? Furthermore, we discuss what is going on in the week, like how I feel, and he, and he feels, and he comes every week just for me. I hope and I wish that everybody had a reliable friend like Mr. Morgan. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. He went on to middle school and junior high, and I followed him there through middle school every week, 30-minute just commitment with him, playing basketball, playing checkers, helping with homework. Now he's making straight A's, uh, playing three sports. But here's the thing. While I may have helped... Stephen, I'm sure I did. The truth is, he helped me. Here's how. He helped me to feel God's heart more deeply, to feel God's goodness and love. And many weeks when I drove on that campus, I felt God more nearly and clearly than at any other point in my week. Except, of course, when I'm here with you, right? The point is, there was a kind of salvation in it for me. It saved me from being selfish, saved me from building my whole world around me. And I want to tell you, you cannot put a price tag on that. 
Why does God send us to outsiders? First of all, yeah, because he loves them to show he's a God of grace, but also in a way, he sends us to them to save us, to save us. And that is precisely what happens here. Who feeds Elijah, the man of God? A widow, poor widow. Who keeps the mighty prophet alive? A follower of Baal. Who serves the faithful minister of God? Someone unlike him. The point is, going to the outsider on mission saves Elijah's life. And yes, 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 right here. Ultimately, God's salvation does come through him to her as well. Let's look at it. Point three, why are we sent? We're sent in a crisis to the outsider, but why? And the answer is here, it's to answer a question. Answer a question. Here it is. You'll notice later on when her son dies, she asks this question. It's so telling. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Hint, hint. Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, notice here, she's not thinking like a modern person. Here's what I mean. She doesn't respond to the death, a tragedy in her life by blaming God. Hmm? Like God owes her. Because Elijah's somehow in her life, like God's in her life, like somehow everything is supposed to go okay and things are gonna work out perfectly. No, she doesn't assume she's sinless, faultless. She knows she's a sinner because she isn't saying, God, you owe me. So she asks, why though did it happen? She said, is it because of my sin that my son died? And we should, we should pause right here, kind of drop our anchor for just a second because under this question, I think is the question that every human heart, including yours, is asking today, which is this, where does my worth come from? Where does my worth come from? Does God love me because I'm, because I'm good? Like, is church only for good people? Or does God hate me because I'm bad, because I, I sin? If my son died because of me, am I worth God's love? Who am I? Even if you, if you, today you're not aiming that question at God, at heaven, overtly, I want to tell you, you're still aiming it somewhere. You're aiming it at your job. Am I somebody because of this? Am I somebody because of that? Why am I good? Why am I worth something? Am I somebody because I'm a, I'm a great mom or parent? But see, this mother, she's aiming, yeah, her question at Elijah. Elijah, tell me, am I a somebody or a nobody? And on what basis? Stuff I do? Is it what you think about me? Elijah is sent to answer that question. Where does my worth come from? And what does he do next? All he says is, give me your son. Give me your son. And Elijah picks up the dead boy, goes into the upper room, stretches him out, breathes on him. In other words, in other words, over this dead, lifeless situation, Elijah becomes vulnerable. He becomes the representative. He stands between the boy and heaven and he offers his own breath. He cries out on the boy's behalf. And so when the boy comes back to life, as he does, there now, therefore, what does the mother say? Look at this, verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know, now I know that you're a man of God. The word of the Lord from your mouth is true. The point is, when she saw the resurrection of the firstborn son, she believed. Come on, somebody. She had dabbled in faith before. Yeah, but when she saw the resurrection, now she believes in the one true God that he loved her and had sent the prophet just for her. And I want to tell you today for us, if you will see 
that not only did Jesus Christ of Nazareth, like Elijah, stretch himself out for you on the cross, but unlike Elijah, when Jesus interceded for you, he gave his final breath. He gave up his life for you on that cross and was crucified for you now, now, now. That will begin to answer this question that you're asking. Is it worth it? Am I worth it? Is all of this worth it? Because to the question, is my son dying for my sin? We get the answer from heaven. No, 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 no. God's son dies for your sin. Jesus Christ says, I will die for your sin because I have decided that you are worth it. And today also, if you will grasp, see the resurrection here, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth that hundreds, by the way, of people were killed for saying, not I believe it, but they were killed for saying, I saw it. And there's a difference. If you grasp that it happened for you, now, 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 you begin to be a Christian. Now you can know that God loves you. And if you are already a Christian, now you can begin to grasp why we go, why we are sent. And here's why. It's because the death and the resurrection of the firstborn son of almighty God gets to the bottom of why we're here. Why the church of Jesus is here. We aren't here, hear me, because it's worth it to you or worth it to me or worth it to a human. No, we're here because it's worth it to him, to the glory of God. We aren't here because you think it's worth it. We're here because he thinks it's worth it. God says we are worth it. He says his church is worth it. People are really worth it. Not in some like American, transactional, self-centered, oriented way, but in a heavenly, eternal, too good almost to be true kind of way. God has said that you and I and us and his mission in the world are worth the infinite cost he has paid. And now, yeah, now you can know and believe that Jesus loves you because of the death and the resurrection of the firstborn son. So here's my question. Here's my question now. Where do we begin? Huh? With this. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to do? Where do you begin? Where can you begin today? Your neighbors, your school, your team, your office, maybe one of our ministry teams. Yeah, Mosaic, street ministry, mentors, what we do on campus at UT, mission trips. I don't know where you can begin, but you can begin. You can begin somewhere because I want to tell you, God has said we are worth it. And I hope that will sink a little bit deeper into you. I'm going to pray right now for us to receive that kind of grace and strength to be able to live this out. Lord, I thank you today for helping us, um, showing us that you, like Elijah, you were sent to someone not like yourself. In the incarnation, we can see most clearly the heart of God and the depths to which Father, Son, Spirit will go to bring us back. And Lord, I pray in the same way we would have the conviction and the courage and the backbone to live this out. Lord, now our culture's in crisis. Great, we're sent. Things are going bad. Awesome, we're here. Thank you for sending us. Even in the middle of our personal crisis, some of us are struggling with that, yeah. Lord, you still can call us to go. We can still make a difference no matter where we are. In Jesus' name, I thank you for these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, 
please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.